Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. For more information and to donate online, go to 3cr.org.au. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Well, good morning, everyone. You're tuned to Community Radio 3CR. Time is just after 7.30. And, of course, it's Sunday morning and time for the 3CR Gardening Show. My name's Pam Vardy. First up, we have to welcome Tim Samson back again. And Tim, of course, is Marketing Manager at Plants Management Australia. Good morning, Tim. Good morning, Pam. Good morning, listeners. Long time no see. Yeah, it's been my first time this year, I think. It has been, yes. Yeah, it's yes. Been, well, it's been a whole hard summer since I was here last. <laughs> it's been an amazing summer. Certainly. That's one word, yeah. Yes. <laughs> we've had a bit of everything, haven't we? Yeah, we've had, it's, yeah, like I've, 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 Water my garden off watering uh, off, off tanks, so right. I don't have any mains water supply. Yep, it's been a tough year this year. Oh, I've had yes. to really rationalise quite a few things. Vegetable gardens much less than it has been in previous years. Yep, and I'm looking forward to the season changing and some getting some rain, so <laughs> I, I can think actually we get some all things are. in the ground. Yeah. Yes, yes, I'm I'm dreading what my water bill's going to be. To be quite honest, yeah, it's, but well, it, I've been looking at how much I've had, had to buy water. You know, yep, tanks of water. And typically, in a typical year, we work out a bit better than mains water because we can catch it off our roof. Yep. But because it hasn't rained this year at all, I know we're well behind. You yeah. Know? I think I think I figured this out the other day that if you're buying mains water, I think it's below 440 liters a day. You pay about two dollars sixty-four a liter, something okay. like for a thousand liters. Yep. Uh, we are paying about fifteen bucks a thousand liters right. for cartage. So okay. At the moment, when it's not raining, yeah, we're, we're copping it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, um, I've got a water tank specifically designated for the veggie garden, but that ran out a long time yeah. ago, and you think, oh yeah. no, yeah. you know. So I've basically given up on the veggie garden. I've had to. Yeah. I yeah. Mean, and I've, I've rationalised it right back to, yeah. to a couple of things that I just had to have, my tomatoes in particular. Well, I've got a, I've got a couple of permanent veggies in the garden, so I've had to keep those going. Mm. Like I've got, you know, raspberry canes and I've yeah, got um, yep. asparagus, corn. You know, yeah, you don't want to let them go. You don't want to let them go. No, yeah. but but all all the ones that were just seasonal, I've just had to let them yeah. totally go. And I've just got to keep alive the main things, the main That's structure right. of the garden. Well, so. and it's part of the cycle. I mean, I don't mean yeah. to sort of bring a downer to the to the show, but it's it is part of. I was reflecting on this on the way, and it's part of the cycle of our 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 nature itself, mm. this has been a particularly interesting year. It's, <laughs> and let's, and it's, you know, there are things to learn. And, For sure. And I'm rationalising what I'm going to do with my vegetable garden, thinking maybe I have to switch, because I'm in-ground vegetable garden, in soil. I've yes, always been so a soil gardener. Yes, so maybe I. I've got to think about some sort of raised wicking bed or some, some way of, of u- utilising water better. This, mm. this, this, this is a discussion that's happening in my head right now. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, I've actually got, um, although my big veggie garden is all in ground, I do have a couple of little wicking beds just outside my kitchen door, and I'm thinking I'm going to have to put these to much more yeah, use yeah. And, and really think what I'm going to plant in those for sort of immediate use, like leafy greens and, yeah. you know, things that you, things you that, want to have there yeah. as, a, as a staple. Good little for, picking crops that need water. Absolutely. I, mean, I, can't, yeah, I can't keep the water up to things like that because they are so water-hungry. Yeah. You know, they're fleshy leaf. They, they need a lot that's of water. That's right. That's mm. right. Yeah, so anyway, we learn, don't we? we Constantly do. gardeners have learning. challenges. Yeah. <laughs> 
It's not a problem. It's just a solution. It is. Or another thing to solve. Absolutely. We have to say a very good morning to Simon Rickard. I'm Simon. Good morning, Pam, and good morning, everyone at home. And uh, what have you been up to? We haven't seen you for so long. Well, like you two, I've just been keeping my garden alive and wringing my hands. It has been such a depressing summer, and it seems to be... Dragging on much longer than usual as well. Mm. Um, I, you know, at this time of year, all the big gum trees around me are shedding their bark. So oh. I get these big 10 foot, three meter long strips of bark slapping on my roof at night and yep. come out in the morning and they're all over the garden. And yes. gonna, but at least they're not on fire this year. Mm. So, you know, <laughs> looking on the bright yeah. side. <laughs> well, we've had a lot of smoke haze. I know yeah, that much. That's but, right. Um, poor folks over at Bunyip. Oh, mm. yes. Mm. Dreadful. So, um, yeah, like you two, I've just been, you know, just trying to manage my water, keep alive the things which, um, you know. I mean, my garden's designed to look up, to, to live on my natural Yours rainfall. really is a dry climate garden, isn't well, it? Well... Apart from all your veggies. It, it is, but I, I usually water before those really hot periods mm. to, to so that things don't look like they're just surviving, so that yep. it looks like a you, garden you like that's thriving. Yeah. <laughs> 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 <But>, well... <laughs> I'm listening to that going, I wish I could water before, before those hot spells. <laughs> yeah, so... It's been a challenge for everyone, I think. In I all. think so. Yeah. yeah but it, it does. It does sort of distill down what are the the true survivors. I mean, this is yes. not this oh, is not yeah. going to be an aberration. This is this is going to this be a pattern that we're going to have. Mm. Um, so I'm now casting my eye across the the parts of my garden that are looking quite thin, but what has survived? And mm. and there are some real winners in there. Mm. I've got. I mean, even things like simple things like dianthus or um, little 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 napweeds, the centaurias, the I've got poo years, which love it in these kind of conditions. And it's this selection process that's yep. going on. Yep. I've, I've had huge success with the living mulch, the aptinia, the yep. baby sunrose. That's yep. just taking off. In fact, mm. now I have to go and cut that's it back. Yeah. <laughs> um, but these things are winning. And I'm saying, okay, this informs my... It's so easy in spring to go... And I did this this year. Uh, I think I had a... Um, uh, Essie's gift, the tilopia. I thought, oh, yes, great, beautiful native flower. I'll stick that in. And it was silly because by the time it got to January, it scorched to nothing and dead. Yes. I couldn't water it. I, I just mm. can't. Yep. Well, that's the thing. I think the scorch, um, what, uh, how I'm looking at my plants now is the ones which have stood up to the heat. I mean, everything in my garden stands up to the dry, no problems, but it's how they look at the end of summer. You mm-hmm. know, I don't want to look at brown scorch leaves. And when we had that, we had a five-day heat wave just mm. a couple of weeks ago, and I was in Adelaide at the time working, and when I got home, you know, the garden was just crispy. Oh. So now I'm looking at plants that, that stress beautifully, things mm. that don't go crispy, and there's going to be a whole lot more of those in my garden from now on. And mm. anything that goes brown is going to get turfed out. Yep. I think this is this. We're, we're all doing some, some instant planning for the next season, aren't mm. we? Well, it's a really, it's a good time it of year. It is a good time, time to sit back yeah, and, exactly. and actually, yes, it's evaluate. So, it's so much easier in spring mm. to look oh, at yes. your garden and, and, and be think, oh, optimistic. Yes, and it's, it's, you know, <laughs> there's so much moisture in the soil, the yep. softer light. But now we've had, you know, three months of mm. basically no rain mm. and then a hot and spell like that on the end of mm. that, yep. which was probably the longest one we've had all mm. summer here, mm. which was only two weeks ago. Yeah. Yep. You know, it was beyond the definition exactly. of summer. Yeah. This was in technically autumn. Yeah. Mm. Uh, and there's... There's our laboratory. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly. the living laboratory of what we what we need to observe. That's yep. right. Yep. Mm. I have to say my salvias have flourished. They've done beautifully. They're yep. still flowering their heads off. Um, and roses have done really well. Yep. Um, so they're two of the things that have stood out in my garden as surviving and not burning at all. 
Um, the poor old um, Japanese maples have mm-hmm. really crisped up on the top, you know, where they've yep. been in direct contact with the sun. Um, but, yeah. But we the, have the lack of rain or the lack of moisture in the air is what's helping things like, mm. things like your roses. You know, they don't like mildew or they don't like any sort of That's right. moisture sitting around. Yes. So, and it's been similar with my tomato crop. That mm. I've had a pretty good year, very good year. Have you? Tomatoes, because I've had very little disease in them. Because okay. it's been, the air's been so dry. Yeah. Mm. So many people in Melbourne have had disastrous tomato <laughs> crops. They've really failed on them this year. <laughs> well, maybe that's a testament to my skills. Then. Oh, it could be. <laughs> it could be. There you go. <laughs> well done, you. Yeah. <laughs> oh, dear. What's Flip. really flourished for you, Simon? What's really flourished for me? Um, well, well, I've actually brought in today some of the autumn bulbs that are in flower now. And, you know, March is a, for me, March makes me feel so despondent because everything looks so fagged out and tired after yep. all, the, all the heat and the dry. So when the, the autumn bulbs start to flower, it, you know, it really gives you a little bit of hope. And, and I'm really looking forward to winter, to be perfectly <laughs> honest. So, um, yeah, they've done really well for me. Um, what else? Yeah, the autumn bulbs are uh, popping up at the moment. Um, actually, lilies have really surprised me. I grow a lot of um, uh, of lilies. And okay. Partic- one class called the Orient Pet Lilies, which are hybrids of Oriental and Trumpet Lilies, yes. have done really well. And, and there's been a little bit of leaf burn on them. But apart from that, they've come through unscathed with very, very little water. Mm-hmm. So, And when you think about it, lilies are succulents. You know, Think about those big fleshy bulbs yes. and big fleshy leaves. Yes. They're really succulent plants. And if you prepare the soil well, you know... Um, I give when I'm planting mine, I give them a bucket of compost um, above the bulbs where the where the roots come out because mm-hmm. the, the roots come out above the bulbs with lilies or the feeder roots do. Yep. Um, you know they, they they've stood up really well. Uh, are they in full sun? Yeah. Well, yep. Full but they, but their roots are in the shade. So yeah, where I grow okay. them is okay. at the edges of of um, shrubs. So the roots are sh- shaded by the shrubs, and then the heads are in the sun. Mm. So they've done. And they're Tall. That surprised me. They're like yeah. you're getting some serious height. I've, yeah, seen, yeah. I've seen the pictures on Instagram. Yeah. <laughs> Two and three metres t- taller than you even, Tim. So. <laughs> as, Way taller as the listeners than me. can tell, I'm quite tall. <laughs> this is great radio, this, isn't it? Yes, wonderful. <laughs> so, yeah, um, so that's been nice. And look, a lot of uh, shrubs and, you know, foliage plants at this time of year um, still looking good. So, yeah. Does that answer your question? Yeah, it does. <laughs> So when are you going to think about cutting back? Because we're still getting a lot of hot days at the moment and, and yeah. I'm leaving all of that to p- help protect the, the base of the plant. Yeah, no, I, I start cutting back at this time of year, late, late summer and early autumn. You know, when things, as I say, look tired, yep. um, if a lot of your perennial clumps have opened up, I, I, I cut them right back. Any shrubs that have got a bit hairy around the edges. I, I find if things have got a nice, neat outline, like shrubs are... Clipped into a ball, yep. and anything that should be vertical, if it's fallen over, cut it off. Any, if everything's vertical, I don't know. This probably says a lot about my me and my psychology. But if, as long as things are bolt <laughs> upright or have a nice outline, you know, nice trimmed outline, well, then yeah. you can get away with anything. It's I about reckon. form, now, yeah. isn't it? And shapes, it, because shapes are what you're left with at the end of the season as the as the the flower bonanza declines. Yep. And yeah, I, I well, I aspire to doing what. <laughs> <laughs> what Simon's saying. You just don't have but I drive time. past my, I got one, a naughtier Macedonica, which is a little pincushion thing, which finished flowering about six weeks ago. Okay. And now it's just a mass of dead sticks. Oh, yep. they look good. Which I really should be yeah. cutting back. 
But has it got little seed heads on it? Yeah, like that, but, but looks, it's they're good. Look, it actually looks ugly. <laughs> <laughs> but I haven't got around to cutting it back. So take solace, everyone out there. It's time, Paul. <laughs> I get to a point later on in the season, and it's it's coming now. In fact, it's building in my psyche every time I drive into the into the driveway. Really, should do a day of cutting back. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And I'm ready Same. for it now, and it it does depend on the climate or the the, the mm. current weather conditions. Mm. I wouldn't have been doing that two weeks ago in 38 degrees. Mm. No, for, no, For two no. reasons. Mm. One, it's not going to do the plants any good. Yep. Mm. And I'm going to be dead. Yeah. I'm, doing that. I'm going to be <laughs> dehydrated. Yes. Even just yesterday was the first day I, of the season, really, that I got into the garden. I got into the vegetable garden, cleaned it out, and um, sort of got some brassica beds planted. But I hadn't really actually spent any time in the garden mm. over the summertime, mm. apart from emergency watering. Yep. It's, it's hard when it's really hot. I, I, think, I think you're speaking for most of us, to be mm. quite honest, because watering's had to be the number one priority. And, and you know, we're, a lot of us are very time poor, and mm. there might be a lot of jobs out in the garden that we really would love to be able to do, but, you know, <laughs> hey, if we don't yeah. get to do it, well, it's too hot outside anyway. We'll find an excuse, won't well, we? Well, that's right. And, you, I mean, you want your garden to be, um, you want to enjoy the time in yeah. your garden, not feel it's a burden. You don't want to be a slave to that's it. That's right. And yeah. so that's an important thing to keep in mind when you are, you know, designing a garden. I mean, as Tim says, it's really easy in spring to go a little bit nuts, but you've got to think about this time of year and winter when it's cold. And, yes. And I think that point is entirely valid, and it's probably the major reason that I'm not into the garden much, because it's so hot, it's not fun. No, it's burdensome. No, it's not fun. But I really do enjoy it. When the weather's a bit cooler... I love those sort of lazy days in the garden yep. where I'm working in the garden physically. Mm. The days are a bit sort of milder, the sun's a bit lower. And then mm. in, the, in the depth of winter, there's not much more fun than having a hard day doing the hard grunt work, you know, mm. digging holes, mm. or planting, mulching, those sorts of things. Mm. I can't do that in the heat. No. Mm. I'm sure none of us can. Or if no. you can, you're mad. Yeah. <laughs> my, my other big excuse is that we've, Got well, we thought we had one tiger snake in the garden, Ooh. but yesterday, lo and behold, we found a baby tiger snake on the on the pool solar blanket. Ooh. So, um, <laughs> so obviously, uh, it was a female tiger snake. We thought she was pretty big, right. um, and so that means there's probably a few other babies around in the wow. garden now too. So, um, so you're waiting it for them really to go to sleep. Doesn't really you to go down and crawl <laughs> on your hands and knees trying to. <laughs> yeah, I had a copperhead in my garden a few, uh, during one really? of the heat waves. Yeah. Okay. Um, we we're up at the altitude where I live, we have very few snakes. Copperheads are really the only things up mm. there. Okay. And um, but I've never had a snake in my garden before, um, oh, ever. So okay. that was exciting. That was in one of the real heat waves, and it was in a clump of epimediums. And then I followed him around for about ten minutes, and then he went and uh, went under a camellia. Right. And then he, it's interesting because I've got some clients who are absolutely neurotic about having grass in there. I will, they will not have ornamental grasses in their garden because grasses attract snakes. Oh, so oh, now we can really? also strike epimediums. Yeah. Camellias. <laughs> Camellias are off the list now. Um, the fact of the matter is humans attract snakes because we have water and food. Mm. We attract rodents and, and they're a food source for snakes. So, yep. so if you don't want snakes in your garden, folks, don't, you know, Maybe you should leave. It's humans that attract yeah, snakes, not grasses. Even if you had a blank yeah. canvas of scoria as yep. your backyard, you're still going to get a snake. In fact, you're probably going to attract them because they're well, on a nice little day. Yeah, they're going to sit nice yeah, So they'd love it. Go under the house in summer for shade. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. It's always been a fascination for me that people were anti-grasses because, yeah. or, or grass. Mm. You know, what should I do to plant to keep snakes away? Oh, don't keep away from grasses. Yeah. I don't get the logic. I mean, no, no. If you think about how a snake behaves, yeah. just... Likes yep. sun, water, food. Yep. 
Where's the grass in that? Yeah. yeah. Well, um, I live in a, a little no-through road with, with six houses, mm. and I've spoken to all my neighbours. Every one of them has had snakes in, in their garden this mm-hmm. year. So, uh, and and there've apparently been unprecedented numbers of snakes in in um, suburbs like Greensboro, which is mm. not far from us, but a much more built-up suburb, whereas mm. Eltham, you know, we're all on sort of bigger... Mm. I'm on an acre yeah. and most of them are on... Most of the neighbours are on acre blocks mm. and um, we've got a creek at the bottom of the property. So you'd expect snakes much more in our area, but they're all in built-up areas mm. as well this year. So It's, been it's interesting th- looking at the, the statistics about who gets bitten by snakes as well. I can't remember the exact figures, but it's something... It's generally men between the ages of like 15 and 43 or something, it's blokes trying to kill snakes. Mm. So, you know, if there's a snake in your garden, don't go and get a shovel because A, it's illegal. It's totally illegal. But B, you'll probably get bitten. You know, if you... So just mm. walk Leave it away. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Look, they're more scared of you than you are of them. That's Seriously. Right. I mean, give them one chance and they'll just slither That's away, right. find somewhere to hide and um, mm. they won't bother you. Don't become a statistic, fellas. No. It's more <laughs> of a worry if, if you go outside at night time in the dark because you could inadvertently tread on one by accident, mm. and that, that's a bit of a worry. And don't go out wearing thongs if it's dark at night. Mm. So, I, you know, you've just got to be sensible. Mm. And My back lawn's covered with kangaroos at night, so if I go, you know, if I'm cooking dinner, I think, oh, gosh, I need to go out and get some parsley or whatever. Yep. I have to go out and sort of coerce all the kangaroos off the off the back lawn. Be, <laughs> excuse me, <laughs> you know they're huge. They're all half a dozen of them out there. How do they? How do they? Do they affect your veggie garden? Or? No, no. The kangaroos are really well behaved. So it's wallabies it, that are. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Eastern grey kangaroos. And because there's this little, because I do water my veggie garden and my fruit trees, there's this little fringe of green grass around there. So yes. they all come into graze on that. Yes. Um, and your, your backyard's quite enclosed, and from it's not yeah. it's not a big open field. No, no. So they're no. coming and and quite suburban. There's a I'm paddock at the end of the road because the the wombat state forest is at the end of my street. Right, so they're hectares, coming out of there. And there, there's a big paddock, and but every night they commute. You can see where they come under the fence, and they commute down my street, and all the neighbours' gardens are full of them at night, and okay. they'll commute back in the morning. Yes. So, but they're very gentle. You know, they don't damage anything in my garden. These huge, big animals, but they jump very daintily through all my mm. plants. They and as Tim said, they only eat lawn grass. They don't yep. attack any ornamentals. Yep. So, but wallabies. I mean, remember the wallabies we I had do. at St. Earth. I well oh. remember. They they eat flower <laughs> buds, shoot tips. They rip branches off trees. Yeah. Yeah, all the good stuff. Like all the and, good and stuff. my folks up at Castlemaine have had huge trouble with wallabies on on apple trees. Mm. And it's not just nibbling on the branches. It no. is literally yeah. dragging just, the branches yeah. down, snapping the them. Branches yeah. Off. Yeah. And when they're really hungry, they, well, yeah. can't blame them. Yeah. No. no, no, you can't. You can't. I mean, there's been lack of water, so they've got to come in closer for, mm. for where there's been water and where we're accommodating them. Mm. Yes, yeah, so I get the odd kangaroo as well, mm. but... Um, you know, no damage to the garden, but it's because I've been watering the veggie garden and there's yeah. green grass around the perimeter of it. So, yeah. of course, they come yeah. in to, um, to graze on that. But um, it, oh. it shows no you've got a nice habitat garden, doesn't really? it, if you've no. got snakes no. and no kangaroos. And oh, yeah, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> well, keep away kangaroos by not having green grass. That's how oh, yeah. oh, there you go. <laughs> Back to the scoria. Snakes, but no kangaroos. Okay, I must get to a few community announcements. There are still things uh, taking place. So um, so if you haven't got any plans for the day or over the next coming week or so, um, here's a few ideas for you. 
Firstly, um, the uh, Australian uh, there's a, an autumn plant sale of Australian plants for the Growing Friends group down at Cranbourne uh, Friends of Royal Botanic Gardens today. It was on yesterday. It's on again today. 10 o'clock through till 4 o'clock this afternoon. Of course, it's down at Cranbourne Botanic Gardens, uh, corner of Bellato Road and Botanic Drive in Cranbourne. They'll have a wide range of Australian plants in tubes and larger pots also for sale, priced from $3 upwards. Now, of course, um, today is the second day of the Herb and Chilli Festival. Um, this is, uh, well, it's... it's advertised as Australia's hottest weekend for very good reason. <laughs> <laughs> and this is where some of these um, very brash young men, I think, think that they can brave the hottest chilies in the world. And <laughs> good luck to them for the trying, yeah, but I wouldn't them. be yeah. doing that. <laughs> um, but there's uh, so many things happening at the Herb and Chili Festival. They, uh, they've um, obviously got uh, let, lots of herbs and chilies for sale there. Um, every... Uh, Ticket holder receives a free plant. There's four stages running from 11 o'clock till 4.30 with speakers. Um, you can, uh, you can uh, let me see, there's cooking demonstrations, of course. Um, there's free kids' activities, including jumping castles, face painting, pony rides, an animal farm. There's 80-plus stalls selling sweet and savoury foods, beer, wine, healthy drinks, handicrafts and other products. Um, there's access to the world's best hot sources, sources including Australian, American, Mexican and Japanese. So uh, there you go. Now that's all taking place. The address, 125 Quail Road, spelt Q-U-A-Y-L-E, Quail Road in Wandon. It's just off the Warburton Highway. It's very well signposted. Um, now cost, adults $24.00. Concession students $18, children under 14 free. There's a family uh, ticket of two adults and two under 18s for 65. And, uh, and uh, you can't get into the concert because that was last night. There is uh, plenty of free parking on site and uh, there's separate parking for motorcycles and bicycles. There's... Um, also dedicated uh, parking areas for disabled access and there's vegan uh, foods and most other food options available. So, uh, and well-behaved dogs on leash are also welcome. So that's all happening today, the last day of it. So um, if you haven't got anything planned, that would be lots and lots of fun with lots of live music there as well. Now, also, um, I've been asked to remind listeners about the Autumn Coach Tour that's being run by Encouraging Women in Horticulture. Now, this is going to Geelong Specialist Nurseries and Gardens on Saturday the 23rd of March. So that's next Saturday. Now, uh, they're departing from Fed Square uh, at uh, 8.30 sharp next Saturday. Uh, first up at 10am they're visiting Country Dahlias uh, which is out in Winchelsea there'll be morning tour, tea and talk an opportunity to purchase plants there then by 12.20 they're going to Cottage Farm Nursery and Gardens at uh, Naware don't know where that is but must be somewhere in the area lunch there as well and again an opportunity to purchase plants 2.10, they're off to Palm Life. It's lovely banks with a talk and a tour. At 3 o'clock, 
to Sualo, I should say, Gardens and Nursery, again in Lovely Banks, afternoon tea, tour and talk, and approximately 5 o'clock you'll arrive back at Fed Square. Now, um, originally uh, they did say that bookings would close on the 15th, but they've kept those bookings open for this weekend. So if you'd like to go on that tour next Saturday, um, you simply register at events at ewha.com.au. Now, uh, prices... EWHA members are $85, non-members $100. That includes everything, the coach, the, uh, all the, uh, the, the lunches, morning teas, etc. So, uh, as I say, you do need to register this weekend, though, because uh, they will need to make, uh, have final numbers for tomorrow. So, again, that address, if you'd like to make a booking, events at ewha.com. Now, Open Gardens Victoria have got two open gardens coming up next weekend. The first one is um, Yvonne's Garden in Elstonwick. Now, uh, this is um, a very thoughtfully planned garden. It's got great planting design and mobility accessible uh, paths that have combined into tranquil and practical spaces. So when you enter the front gate, there's a feeling of calmness with winding pathways leading to a back garden with meandering timber boardwalks inspired by those found in the forests of Wilson's Prom. Uh, now the boardwalks lead into areas of uh, Dramana toppings to give the garden its relaxed beachy feel. The concept of the garden was hatched as a future plan for a time when the owner felt she might experience reduced mobility. And the uh, design was originated um, by uh, landscape designer Fiona Brockoff with embellishments by the owner over successive years. Now, uh, Yvonne's Garden is opening in support of Parkinson's Victoria, um, which, of course, is a not-for-profit organisation. And uh, <coughs> it, this is being combined with a second garden opening. So first of all, the address for Yvonne's Garden, 43 Bertram Street in Elstonwick. It's open from 10am through to 4.30, both next Saturday and Sunday. Entry is $8, children under 18 free, students $5, and as an extra, there will be a sausage sizzle at the property. Now, the other, the other garden that's opening in conjunction with this um, is uh, a courtyard garden, a seaside courtyard garden in Hampton. Uh, now, it's been created for the owners in 2016 by landscape designer Rick Molino. It's a petite 80 square metre Hampton garden. It shows how clever design and plant choices can combine to produce a private space that's beautiful, productive and a pleasure to be in. The location of the garden is challenging. It's located in immediate proximity to Hampton Beach foreshore, um, it, yet it's within a built-up urban environment with neighbouring properties close to the boundaries. The owners wanted an informal garden that would complement the contemporary design of their home, maximise the sense of space and provide plants to harvest for the kitchen. Now, Rick's garden design has a relaxed Mediterranean planting style which integrates flowers, textured foliage, form, perfume and edibles into the confined space without feeling cramped 
or confused. Now, this garden is opening in support of Bailey House, another not-for-profit organisation that specialises in supporting children and adults with an intellectual disability. Uh, so those two gardens are opening, as I say, next weekend. Seaside Courtyard Garden, the address is 46 Beach Road in Hampton. Uh, again, next Saturday and Sunday, 23rd, 24th of March, 10 to 4.30. Entry, $8. Children under 18, free. Students, $5. And uh, Rick, the designer, will be in the garden to chat to visitors on both days, uh, all day on Saturday and Sunday in the morning only. So, um, so that would be great to have a wander around and be able to chat to him about his design. Now, as usual, Open Gardens Victoria have very kindly given us one free double pass to each of those gardens. So the first two listeners to phone in on 94190155, um, you can have one of those free double passes posted out to you. It will be posted out, so give us a call on 94190155 and uh, you can get either a double pass to the Elstonwick Garden or a double pass to the Hampton Garden. Now, just a couple more that I need to very quickly mention. Uh, Michelle Adler, who uh, used to be um, a, uh, a lecturer at uh, Burnley College, uh, is giving a couple of talks coming up. The first one is 25th of March. That's being held at Mornington Heritage Rose Growers. It's uh, entitled Evolution of a Wetland because uh, Michelle and her partner Rod um, have created a wetland area on their property. Uh, this will take place in the garden room, uh, Mornington Rose Garden, which is in Tyab Road in Mornington. The second talk on uh, the following day, 26th of March, is an illustrated talk on Papua New Guinea. Um, it'll be uh, a visual visit to the forests of the highlands, dripping with dendrobians, living in a native coastal village near Wewak, uh, learning to grow sago and betel nut, a volcanic climb in Rabaul, a long boat trip up the Seepik River and meet Bougainvilliers in Bougainville. So uh, PNG is a melting pot of volcanoes, flora, relic animals and warring tribes. What more could you want? Fascinating culture and fabulous wildlife. So um, that talk is coming up, um, being held for the Friends of Burnley College. So that one will take place at uh, Burnley. And uh, 7 o'clock for a 7.30 start. Uh, now, uh, the cost is $10 if you're a member of the Friends group, $20 if you're a non-member and as I say, starts at 7 o'clock for nibbles and 7.30 for the talk. And just very finally, the day after that, on the 27th, Friends of Burnley have got an autumn plant sale, 12 o'clock through till 3 o'clock. Uh, for sale, they'll have a selection, of, a selection of native and exotic trees and shrubs, perennials, bulbs, succulents, indoor and food plants, the location is the lawn behind the Student Amenities Building. Simply follow the signs. Parking is on Yarra Boulevard. Um, there's no car access to the campus. Uh, payment is by cash only. And please bring your own plastic bags if possible. 
All funds raised go to Burnley Gardens Projects. And if you'd like a full list of the plant, uh, go to the website www.fobg.org.au and you can see the full plant list there for what is going to be for sale. Okay, I do have a couple of others, but uh, if we have time, I'll mention those. Otherwise, I'll mention those next week. Well, it's more than time that we uh, did invite our listeners to talk to us. Um, If you'd like to uh, ask a gardening question this morning, we have Simon Rickard and Tim Sanson in the studio. We'd love to hear from you. That number is 94190155. Or this morning, we have Liz on the outside line. If you'd like to have a chat to Liz... 94198377. 94198377. Okay, first up we have to go to our very good friend Penny Woodward. Good morning, Penny. Uh, good morning, Pam, from sunny Tasmania. It is sunny today, is it? It is. It's a gorgeous day. Uh, hallelujah after last year's weather event. <laughs> uh, yeah, last year was disastrous. We just, you know, tents and everything got blown away. So it was, um, yeah, so I should explain that I'm at the, at the, um, Tasmanian Tomato and Garlic Festival um, in Selborne in northern Tasmania. So, and uh, we're looking like having a really brilliant day. And oh, I, the, Annette and um, Neville Reid, who own Tasmanian Natural Garlic and Tomato, um, they run this festival, and, and all the money, all the gate money, goes to charity. So, it's a, you know, it's a great, it's a great festival. But they've got for tasting more than 150 different varieties of tomatoes. Gosh. Yeah, just it, I just walked into the tent then to see it, and the the colour array is just extraordinary. Fantastic! So that's, that's really exciting, and for sale, obviously. So that you know anyone who comes along um, can can buy really, some really unusual tomatoes, some of which are not in my in our book, unfortunately. Okay. But, uh, <laughs> But, you know, I always knew that was going to happen because, um, you know, people are finding new tomato varieties and then, you know, um, breeding them, you know, breeding them up and, and some terrific um, heirloom seed sellers and, and um, they then start listing them. And, and my criterion for the um, for the book was to have only only tomato varieties that could actually be heirloom tomato varieties that could be bought in Australia. And there's about 230 in the book. Right. But um, I think there's a few more around now. Okay. Uh, um, Volume yeah, two but, coming, Penny. Well, possibly, or maybe, maybe. Or a supplement. <laughs> or, or a website to update it. Mm. Yes, know. fair uh, enough. I was I was contemplating that the other day. I'll see. Okay. Yeah, yeah but it's um, all the stallholders are, are rocking up. There's um, there's about forty stallholders coming with the projects and and crafts and arts from all over northern Tassie. So. Um, and lots of different garlics as well. I haven't actually had a chance to see what garlics I've got, but I know there's a lot of different cultivars of garlic too. So now, now, there are quite a few garlic growers down in Tassie, aren't there? There, there are, and, and it's a really good state for growing garlic because you can grow everything except the subtropical garlic. So you can you can grow all the cold, really cold climate, late season garlics down here really well. So there's some really... Unusual garlics here as well, because they've been growing them down here for such a long time. So, yeah, and it's and it's just great to have your homegrown or or buy, you know, locally grown homegrown garlic. You don't want to buy the imported overseas stuff. Fantastic, yes, and of course, no, no, uh, you know, fumicides. Yeah, exactly. You all all imported garlic has to be sprayed with the toxic parasite methyl bromide. Yes. 
um, and that's a customs regulation. So anything that's imported this way, that, let alone you know what happens to it in its country of origin, so you're much better off buying Australian garlic if you can. Yep, absolutely. Well, have a great day down there, Penny. Thank you, and I'm sorry I can't be with you today. Never mind, never mind. Okay. I'm, I'm sure Simon and Tim will make up for you. <laughs> I'm sure we'll do they our best. will. <laughs> See you, Penny. See you, Penny. Bye. Bye. Well, Tim, that's given you a fantastic segue. You've brought oh, yeah. in a whole lot of tomatoes. Well, I haven't brought in a whole lot. I haven't well, got 300. No, no, but... <laughs> and, it, and I think that's often the challenge. Well, it was for me years ago deciding what tomatoes to grow at home. Yes. You, you obviously can't grow 300 varieties of tomatoes. No. And in, in an ideal world, you would have an experiment or two every year and sort of play around. Uh, I didn't do that this year. I went back to three stalwarts for, for my tomato crop. Um, because I know that what I'm going to get, I know I'm going to get a good crop. I know I know what I'm going to use them for. I, I don't do much bottling anymore. I used to grow okay. a lot of um, sourcing and bottling type tomatoes like Amish post, paste and some of those, the, the bigger beefsteak beef types. Steaks, yes. Um, but I've found over the last few years, and especially with, as we discussed before, the, what, the restrictions on my vegetable garden, that it's the, it's the fresh-eating salad-type tomatoes that, yep. that get consumed in my house. Yep. So, okay, I'll take the cues from the, from the peeps and go, okay, this is what <laughs> I'm going to grow. So this year I have grown three tomatoes. I've basically, I didn't realise, actually, but it's actually a traffic light scenario. I've oh, got there a, a you red, go. <laughs> a, I've got a red, an orange-ish and a green. Yes. Um, and these are, these are varieties that will be in Penny's book, and I do feel a bit... Um, uh, Penny's the, clearly the, the tomato expert when it comes to this material. We've been building this material for a long time. The, the three I've got are actually three American varieties. So mm-hmm. they all come from the States. Yep. One is technically an heirloom. Uh, two of them are not heirlooms. Explain to listeners. Yeah, and it's an interesting one. That, and it, so there's a couple of classifications of tomatoes. There's the concept of an heirloom, which is a, an old variety. So in Wapsipinic and Peach is the heirloom that I've got here. Uh, it dates back to the, I think it's about 1890 was when it was first recorded. Um, uh, Wapsipinikin peach, the name comes from the Wapsipinikin River in Iowa. Peach because it's got a bit of a, a fuzz on, on the skin. Oh, okay. So it's, so it's not just the colour. It's not just the colour. It's actually got a bit of fur. There are a few furry apples, not apples, <laughs> furry tomatoes out there. Okay. Um, so, so it And it was, I guess, 1890 is not the point when it was originates that's when it kind of first was recorded and there was a family i don't know the names of the people but they handed it down in an heirloom fashion you know yep. from season to season it became part of their 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 life their lexicon that's what they do mm. that family kept them going and then it became popular from there on um after that that year those those years of seed collection so what they were doing was they would they would grow the crop collect the seed each year germinate the following year and because it's an open pollinated variety it will come generally true to type mm. um, because tomatoes are self fertile they don't outcross and it's pretty stable yep so that's the concept of an heirloom i also mentioned then open pollinated and yes I'm also a bit of a charlatan here because Simon's written a book on heirloom <laughs> tomatoes <laughs> as well. Exactly. So I, I probably should throw it. <laughs> no, no. no this is, you, you, <laughs> test me. Tell no, me how no, I go. It's absolutely great. So far, so good. So good. Okay. So open pollinated means they that they're not uh, an artificial cross or a, or a cross that's that's um, not going to be stable the following year. Basically, it means it's open air. Nothing specific is done. You don't have to emaciate the flower or do anything particularly technical. And they come generally true the following year with some variation in them. So an open pollinated seed is one that you can collect seed from a given fruit 
and it will come fairly true the next year. That means there's no sort of control or that you don't have to go back to the seed company to get a, um, uh, a, a specific type of plant. Um, the, I guess the opposite of that is an F1 or a filial 1 cross. In its, if it's an F1 hybrid, uh, it will, in its second generation, throw in any, dif- any different direction because it was a controlled cross in the first place. Yep. So if, if it's an open pollinated or often de- designated as an OP, it will come pretty good the following year. And you can collect your own seed. So all three varieties I've got here are open pollinated. One, Rapsipinium peach, is an heirloom open pollinated because it's to do with its, its, its origins. The other two I've got are one called uh, Pink Bumblebee and I've got Green Grape as well. These are what we would call, uh, there's a, lots of technical terms or interesting terms, heirlooms of the future is one concept. Because they can go generation on generation, yes. they can get passed down, yes. but they're not old. Yes. So Green Grape was a selection made by Tom Wagner, who's the same guy that did Green Zebra, he yep. did, uh, and I think Tigerella was mm-hmm. one of his as yes, well. Yes, yes. God, I'm going okay here. Shimmer Creek. <laughs> Shimmer Creek. Actually, I think Tigerella's an English variety. Oh, Shimmer, so got Shimmer one Creek, wrong. though, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, t- tell us a bit about Tom Wagner then. Well, I don't know, except that for him, by the tomatoes he bred. Yeah. Um, but he, his father was Manx. He was from the Isle of Man. And so he, Tom bred this one variety of, um, uh, of tomato. And Tom breeds, as Tim says, open pollinated varieties of tomatoes. So these are stable, purebred strains that, where you can collect your own seed and pass, pass it on to friends and family. So that's why it's an heirloom, as Tim said. But Tom Wagner named this one variety Shimmig Craig, which is a, a Manx term for, um, I think it's a, a, a geographical feature. It's a, like some sort of rock that sticks out of the okay. sea. Um, and the tomato is a lot like a rock too. It's, it's hollow. It's got really <laughs> hard flesh, tough skin. It's, nasty, it's horrible. Really? Yeah. It's, it's completely tough. inedible. It's a stuffing tomato. Be, yeah, it's a stuffing tomato. It's <laughs> been described as an edible box. Yeah. <laughs> um, and people have said to me, why do you keep you know, persevering with this variety? And he said, well, because one day I might need the genes for mm. you know, ah. hard flesh or thick skin or hollow tomato. It, it's important to keep those genes in the library. And so that's why, you know, to me, these these um, open pollinated varieties are important because in them could be the genes for, you know, tolerance of salty soils, for example, mm-hmm. um, from which comes from Solanum cheesemaniae, or from, um, you know, tolerance to drought, or particularly short summers or long summers or whatever it is. Okay. But uh, oh, but no, back to you, Tim. Sorry, I, I well, digress. No, well, it's it's perfectly fine. Inf- interesting information. The um. Yeah, and the other one I have here is is similar in in a in a type to to green grape. Um, it's called pink bumblebee, and it comes from a stable of breeders or plant selectors called artisan tomatoes in the US. Um, so I'll, we'll just describe the fruit of each. So wapsipinicum peach is about the size of a squash ball, a slight furry fuzz. Uh, quite it's got it's quite a solid tomato. Yes. But as it ripens, it goes quite soft, very sweet. Um, and the ones I've got, interestingly, I've noticed this year, and I'm not sure if you've seen this before on yours, Simon, mm. I'm starting to get a sort of a pink or a red blush on some of them, mm. which I'm finding interesting. Um, so I might select for that and mm. end up with my own little version. So I yeah, might, might have Tim's peach. Um, <laughs> green grape is, as, as the name suggests, a green, a green tomato, yes. which can be quite tricky for people because it's green. And it's when it's ripe, it's green. Because um, they sit on the vine and people can think they're not quite ready yet. Yep. They do. The bottoms of them go a sort of a translucent yellow when they're ripe, and they literally drop off the off the vine when they're okay. ripe. And this, yep. this this plant has a dozen or two fruit sitting underneath it, yep. which just get knocked off. Surprisingly sweet for a 
I mean, it doesn't look sweet. You know, sweet, we don't associate green with sweet. Um, very sweet, but with really sort of um, tangy tomato undertones in it. It's not the sort of in-your-face kind of lolly sweet that... that so it's still it. got a little bit of acidity yeah, to it. Yeah, it's got yep. a, sort of an acid base under yep. that sweet. But yep. all of these are, are, are fresh eating. Um, the last one, Pink Bumblebee, is is heavily striped. So it's sort of a golden red with a heavy... Tigerella type stuff. Yes, yes. Uh, and this one is this one kind of is the classic American sweet palate. It's like the the sweetest tomato to my taste uh, that I've had. So it's hugely popular with my kids. Mm. So they're my three, my pick for the season. Can I just say, Wapsipinicon Con Peach is my favourite tomato. I reckon it's like Tim said, it's it's sweet, but also it's really umami. It's really mouth filling, and okay, the flavour is just huge for the size of the tomato. So that's Definitely a favourite of mine. And, and it's, it's one of the few that will crop in my climate as well with, with my very short yeah, summers. I've had a frost already. Um, yes, I saw that. Really? <laughs> yeah. The day oh, after it was 38. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it literally it was. <laughs> it's 38 and then the next morning was minus one. Yay. Oh. But um, Wapsipinicon Pinnacon Peach is one of the few varieties that will grow well for me. Um, Jean Flamme, which is a French heirloom, yes. will as well. And... Um, um, uh, green zebra, which is, as Tim yeah. mentioned, one mm. of Tom Wagner's modern heirlooms mm. from from the 1970s. I don't think yeah. we describe ourselves as heirlooms. Oh. We're both products of the 70s. We're both are products of the 70s. <laughs> Not an heirloom yet. <laughs> no one's passing heirlooms of the future. <laughs> yeah, right. I must say, I, I really love the flavour of a green zebra. I think that's a terrific yeah, tomato. Yeah, it's great, isn't it? Yes. And we could, like like with Tim's green grape here, because it's green, the birds don't peck holes in them. Mm. They don't yes, it's right. interesting, isn't mm. it? Yeah, yeah I've noticed nice. that. Yeah. I was thinking about the, the, the heirloom and, and the first generation hybrid, filial, filial one hybrid that Tim mentioned before, a controlled cross. It's like, the way I always explain it is it's, it's like, um, think about dogs, you know, if you breed two Labradors together, you get more Labradors, because that's a stable, purebred strain. Yeah. That's like your open pollinated tomato. Yep. Same with poodles. If you breed two poodles together, you get more poodles. But if you breed a Labrador and a poodle, you get, you get a, labradoodle. a Labradoodle. But if you breed two Labradoodles together, you don't get more Labradoodles. You get like, just like with the tomatoes, as Tim said, they throw off. Some will look like grandma, some will look like grandpa. Some Good will analogy. Complete mongrels. Mm. Yeah, And right. there are per- people now working on stabilising the, the Labradoodle so that it breeds true, mm. so that you know you can cross two Labradoodles and get more Labradoodles with known... Uh, characteristics right. and that's how these open pollinated varieties arise basically people over many generations will stabilize the strain mm. so they'll you know they'll they'll sow uh, an acre of these tomato of tomato seed they'll throw out all the ones that don't look right and just keep the two plants that mm. look that look right and yep. then next year there'll be you know eight plants that look right and they'll throw out all the rest and the next year there'll be a hundred plants yep. that look right and they'll throw out the rest and in so doing they end up with a, a stable purebred mm. open pollinated yep. strain yep. so so it's just selective like breeding over many years yeah yeah yep. and with tomatoes you can do it year on year on year so it's relatively quick you know, it's not, not like a tree. No, that's a, right. No, that's <laughs> right. <laughs> so that, so that, and there is a lot of work happening, particularly in the US. I mean, it's, it's difficult for us because we can't, you know, I, I look at the, the websites of some of these US um, tomato breeders and there's fascinating stuff there, but we can't get it. Mm. And, it's, and, I, and a word of caution, people shouldn't um, 
try and bring those sorts of material in across our, our national borders because they do carry some pretty significant diseases that, oh, can, yes. that can impact on our tomato industries. So we've got to wait for our seed companies to go through the proper um, techniques and proper channels, which when I was at Diggers, we did that with Pink Bumblebee. That's how that got into the country. Mm. We brought it in, we had it tested, we had it ISTA tested and got batches clean and got it into the country. But it is a bit of a time-consuming process. So there's a time lag. Those things are out there and yep. they're going to make it to us, yep. um, but keep growing them. And I think something like what Penny's talking about with 300-odd tomatoes to go and taste down in Tassie today is wonderful for people to go and test what's out there and then it's go and play. Yep. You know, and if, if they're all open-pollinated ones that, that they've got down there in Tassie, if you can get a hold of half a fruit, you'll have some seed in there. Yeah, and you can that's go and right. Play. You know, yep. And it, that's the joy of it. And you it's exciting. Them. Yeah. Yeah, well, I think it is. Mm. Yeah, fantastic. And and although we mightn't be able to get some of these varieties from from the states, there are so many varieties already here well, in Australia. Well, there's already 300 can, in Tassie, right exactly, now. Exactly. Yeah. So we can <laughs> we can really have a lot of fun. Yeah. 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 Okay, let's go to our next caller, and we have um, Adam out in Heathmont. Good morning, Adam. Hello, Adam. Adam, are you there? No, we seem to have lost Adam. Okay. Uh, Adam, if you are listening, do ring in again, and we'll try and uh, and get to you. Uh, let's let's go with what you brought in, Tim. Apart from oh, some again? tomatoes, yep, Ooh, you I again. Know. While you're on a roll, while I'm on a roll. <laughs> okay, so I, I've brought in a couple of plants here that um, I want to talk about, not because they're new in the world of horticulture, but because they tell a couple of good stories about um, plant breeders. And both of these plants that I'm going to talk about today are going to be featured in a garden at the, the International Flower and Garden Show. Um, we've been working with one of the designers there who's uh, with a garden that's called The Other Side. So this is a Candio Designs, Semkin Landscapes, Jason Hodges Lawn oh, Solutions yes. collaboration. Right. And PMA, who I work for, the Plants Management Australia, we've been supplying some plants for their, for their creation. Um, so two plants I've got here. One is a Carex hybrid, it's an Oshimensis hybrid called Feather Falls, which is not an Australian creation, but is performing incredibly well in Australian conditions. Okay. So for those of you who don't know what a Carex is, it's a sedge. This is quite a long leaf variegated sedge, so it's got a, quite a, it's the, the dark green base is quite deep with a white margin on the leaf. The, there are a number of, and Simon will attest to this, there's a number of carracks on the market and grown in gardens in Australia and all parts of the world. But they have a couple of intrinsic problems. Cold tolerance is one, um, so some of them will get nailed by frost, and that's particularly a European problem. And it's one of the problems that the breeder of this one identified was that heavy frosts would kill all their, all their carracks. Uh, that's not necessarily an Australian problem. We have the opposite end problem where if it's above you know, the sorts of scorching conditions that we've had a couple of weeks ago, a lot of carex will lose, the, especially variegated carex, will lose that variegation and go brown on right. the tips, go okay. brown really easily. Yep. That was one of the key um, breeding criteria for, for this particular Feather Falls carex uh-huh. was that it would withstand the heat. Yep. In fact, I was corresponding with the breeder on this plant the other day and he mentioned that, and he's a Dutchman, that part of their breeding program was that it would sustain a 40 degrees minus to 40 degrees wow. positive. That's a big range. It's impressive, isn't it? Which, yeah. which at first glance, I mean, and this, this plant's been around in Australia for three or four years now, when PMA first sort of introduced it to a lot of growers around Australia and gave it a claim that it's heat tolerant, 
a lot of people are like, yeah, sure, let's have a crack, and, you know, because Carex, we've seen them all go brown before. But this one is really proving its worth. Mm. Up, in, okay. up in Queensland, even in humid climates, mm. it's hot sun, full sun, it retains, uh, it retains its full colour. And we've had, I've had it growing in full sun here in 40 degrees with a little bit of water. So it, it does, it, but I've also got some that didn't get watered yep. that are still surviving quite happily. Okay. So terrific um, sort of foliage foil plant uh, could be used in a, in a pot. Um, the, the name Feather Falls comes from its quite an elongated leaf that will really cascade mm. down. Mm. Um, it's very <coughs> elegant. It, very Is elegant it one point. of those carrots that will grow in shade as well? Yeah, this one, this, this, this particular specimen I've got here is in, was growing in full shade. Yep. Not only will it grow in right. full shade, but it's being used as an indoor plant as well. So basically getting no sun, direct yeah, right. sun. Okay. It looks, looks plastic. It it's, looks fantastic in a pot really though because beautiful. of its cascading yeah. nature. And the other thing about carex too, and there's a couple of other carex on the market. Well, carex have been a bit problematic for a number of reasons. One is that they sort of melt in the heat. And also there are some carracks that will self-seed. Mm. Yep. Um, yep, I was wondering about that. This, we've not seen any. We've had this in trial in Australia now for eight years. Right. Uh, and never have we seen a seedling. Okay, um, so excellent. That's, that's one to look out for. Terrific. Mm. Um, so, so it can be used indoors, it can be used in shade, planted on mass. It gives that sort of a nice light sort of... Um, well, like it, would, it would light look. up a dark area yeah. too because of the... Um, because of the variegation. The variegation, yeah. yeah. And easy to maintain um, if, you know, at the end of the season, if there are any sort of draggly bits, they can just be cut off uh, and can also be hacked right back to the ground. Fantastic. So, so carracks are a, a, a genera that are, are around the world, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and often, I mean, there's native carracks like carrack oppressa, which grows around wetland margins in Australia. So it'll grow anywhere from a, a wetland to a dry bit of shade. That's fantastic. Really useful sort of mm, yeah. landscape lush kind of plant. I can imagine landscapers really going nuts mm. over that. And that's, yeah. that's kind of what we're trying to introduce it to via the, the flower show is yep. that this is a plant that you can have terrific success with, both in a, a home garden and in a sort of municipal landscapes mm. and things mm. like that. Just mm. a reminder too to listeners that if you want to have a look at what we're talking about this morning, go to our um, Facebook page, uh, just simply get onto Facebook, um, type in 3CR Gardening Show and uh, click follow and up will come all the uh, the photos of what we're talking about this morning. We're also so up on Instagram too. We're on Instagram as well, so there you go. Yes, we're, <laughs> we're being dragged slowly into the... <laughs> The modern world. Is Facebook up today? Or is it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it was. It was down, wasn't it? It was. Both down the, the other. Yes, yeah, all yeah. simultaneously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I had okay. to read a book briefly. Really? Yeah. Did you? I didn't know what to do with Got myself. Oh, come one. on. Come on. You're not that addicted. <laughs> Simon, let's go to you with a couple of the plants you've brought in. Okay, sure. No worries. Um, well, I've brought in um, some... Um, apples, first of all, since Tim's talked about his tomatoes, I brought in some heirloom apples. Um, these are all, these are three English varieties. Um, right. Uh, one of them here, which has got much smaller fruit than it usually does because I didn't get around to thinning the tree in spring. Okay. So if you have an apple tree, they, they set loads of fruit. And um, if you leave them all on, the average fruit size is smaller than what you'd expect. Yep. So normally I, I take off about 80% of the crop when they're the size of a 10 cent piece. And it's really heartbreaking just picking oh, off all I these know. little baby apples. <laughs> yes. But then you end up with a better size of apple. I mean, yep. you can see on the, this other 
apple, which I did thin, you know, the, the apple's sort of twice the size. Yep. But this one here is called Ribston Pippin, and um, it's uh, an English 18th century apple from uh, Ribston Hall in Yorkshire. Um, and it's, uh, it's one of my favourite apples. It's quite a vigorous tree, um, and it's, it's very reliable setting fruit. And that's because it's what's called a triploid apple. So instead of being a diploid with two sets of chromosomes, it's got three sets of chromosomes. Um, and that makes it very robust and, you know, healthy and, uh, and, and reliable, but it also means that it has sterile pollen. So um, if you're growing a triploid apple, like let's, what, what are some other ones? Mutsu is one, a Japanese apple called Mutsu. Gravenstein? Uh, Gravenstein. Yeah. If you're growing them, you need to have uh, another, you need to grow them in a trio, basically. If they're triploids, you need a trio. You need one to pollinate your triploid and another one to pollinate the pollinator, if that all makes sense. So that's um, Rips and Pippin. And it's the parent of, a, of probably the most famous English apple, which is this one here, Cox's Orange Pippin. Oh, yes. Um, which is an early 19th century apple. That's a apple. great apple. Yeah, really I think good. it's really wonderful. Really, really beautiful good. looking yes. apple too. Yeah, it is quite nice. It's it's really richly striped with red on a sort of luminous pale green, green yellow background. And the interesting thing about these is when they're they're ripe, the um, seeds rattle inside. So I don't know if I if I rattle it near the microphone, can you hear? Just. I can hear it. There we go. Yeah. Well, yeah, okay, people can what? hear it in the studio, but the seeds are rattling inside the Cox's Orange Pippin. And, you know, it's really highly perfumed, honeyed, very richly flavoured apple. Mm. So that's that's the baby of the Ribston Pippin there. And then the last one I brought in is one called Egremont Russet, which is another English 19th century apple. And it's got this rough brown, what we call russeted skin. It looks like it's wearing pantyhose, something like that. <laughs> Brown and and sort of people are used to seeing this this russeting on burbosk pears. Yes, um, but for some reason burbosk pears are you know acceptable in the marketplace, but russeted no, apples aren't. no yeah, one would take. Crazy. Yeah, but this has got a very different kind of flesh to the other two. It's very very fine grained and very very dense. Right, it's not super juicy, but really good flavour. Yep, um, big nutty sort of flavour. So you know all these di- like Tim's tomatoes, all these different apples have different. Um, flavours and different uses in the kitchen too. Mm. There are cooking apples and there yep. are fresh eating apples yep. and there are early season ones like the Gravenstein Tim mentioned and really late season ones like our Pink Lady, which is an Australian apple. So um, I grow my apples as, as fans at home, as uh, like an espalier, espalier but a fan-shaped yeah. tree. Yep. And that's so that I can do everything from a standing position. You know, I can prune them, I can thin the fruit, I can net the tree, I can spray them with fungicide in winter. Um, and how, how big are your trees? Um, they're a little bit taller than me, so they're about 1.8 mm. metres. Yeah, it's 1.8 metres, so six feet, six feet tall. Yep. And, you know, if you let them grow bigger than that, you can't reach the fruit. Mm. You need a ladder to do everything. The cockatoos get the whole lot. They do. So, um, you know, growing fruit trees in restricted forms, I think, is the way to go at home. Mm. So, yeah. Definitely, yes. I've so got, that's my apples. I've got a couple of apple trees at home that... I've done in a similar sort of shape, but they're three-dimensional. Yep. So, like, rather than being flat as a fan. So a bush tree. So it's a bush tree, yeah. yeah so right. and if it's, but I, I can still net it and manage it, yeah. still yes. maintain it at that height. Yes. But I, because I've got enough room, I can actually make it. It's a bush. I can throw a whole net over it. Yep. And it works quite well, too. But every, but you have to be quite studious in pruning them to yeah. keep them there. Oh, does yes. It does depend a little on the rootstock that they're on. Um, but if you're on a, a sort of a semi-dwarfing rootstock, 
you've still got to be. I mean, how old are your trees? So I'm be oh, eight or nine years old, I yeah. suppose. And how much material are you taking off each year now in your pruning? N- now, not so much. And uh, this is important what Tim was saying about you've got to be studious with pruning. And most of the pruning's done in summer mm. to keep these trees small. And people still make the mistake of pruning. Pruning in, in winter. Yeah, yes. which makes the trees bigger and yes. less mm. fruitful. Yes. And if you prune in late summer, you make them smaller and more fruitful. So this, now I don't take that much material yeah. off. But at, at the beginning, when I was um, establishing the framework of the tree, I was pruning in winter and then I was taking away, you know, six foot long water shoots every... Mm. Yeah. That, is that what you find that's, too? Oh, absolutely. And that summer pruning is critical, particularly, yeah. oh, particularly is. for apples. That And so I'm not sure when you prune in your climate, but for me, it's usually... Fruit set well if I've done if I've been bothered thinning fruit. Yep, it's sometime after that. It's usually sort of mid Jan or somewhere yeah. around there that I'm clipping the yep. top out. Yeah, uh, and that allows the tree to have a little growth response before the end of the season, mm. and that checks the growth. Yes, that's, that's yep. enough. Yes, exactly. Uh, and yeah, manageable tree. Yeah, yep. yeah, yep. I do mine in February. Yep. So yeah, it's the same mm. same sort of thing, because you know think about it when 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 your tree your apple tree grows really big over the summer, um, and then in autumn all of the goodness from those leaves goes down into the base of the tree. Um, so if you prune in in winter, you've got a hundred percent of the energy of the tree under the ground, and the tree wakes up in spring and it's only got you know, 50% of its top growth left. So it just thinks, oh, I've got to replace all these branches. Mm. But when you prune in late summer, like Tim said, the tree doesn't have the energy to replace that growth. Mm. And you're removing all of the green leaves. You're removing all of that strength that the trees developed over the growing season and and throwing it away. So that restricts the vigour of the tree. Mm. Which sounds, you know, terrible, but, but that's... No, it's what we you want. want no, a small, fruitful tree. We're in control. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly, <laughs> that's right. Well, the other thing is that it's got more energy to then put into, into the fruit production rather than having to put on all this green spurt yeah, of growth. Right. Yep. So it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. We've got a couple of queries from the outside line. Uh, firstly, Adam, that uh, we lost the call on. Uh, what he wanted to know was how to remove two square metres of kikuyu from his lawn. Uh, what spray can he use? Um, we gather he's not all that happy about trying to pull it out by hand. Hmm. I'm, I'm not the best person to ask about lawns. <laughs> but what I would say, I've got kikuyu in, my, my, in the areas of garden that do have lawn. And I'm happy with it there. Because in the summer, it uses very little water. That's right. A little sprinkle of rain that we occasionally get will green it up pretty quickly. Yep. The biggest challenge is when it runs into the into the garden oh, beds. Yes. And that's just about being studious, having mm. a decent edge on your garden bed, you know, walking around with a spade from time mm. to time and knocking it back. Mm. If I would I would be less inclined to hit it with any kind of herbicide. Yep. Um, and, and it is possible if it's a small patch and he's really desperate, you, you can dig it out. That it, it is possible. You just have to be vigilant and keep doing it. Well... I would imagine that if he's trying to keep whatever other variety of grass he's got in there, mm. that is probably the safest way of going. Yeah, I imagine so. And I mean, if he's got a spray, it's going to affect the surrounding area. Yeah. So, it's, um, it's the, the selective herbicides select for broadleaf that's weeds right. in grasses, so they, they're going to kill clover and dandelions in grass. And but, favour. But, yeah, and <laughs> favour the grass. But you've got two kinds of grass growing together, you, whatever your lawn is and the kaikuyu. Um, but look, Kaikuyu, like Tim said, I, I agree. It's a really great, you know, warm season grass. It's it's tough and drought tolerant. It's not very fine textured, but gee, it's, you know, reliable. Yeah. Oh, and you see, what, it was about a decade ago when a lot of the sports fields changed 
their mix of turf when it was under conditions of water stress mm. or water supply. And most of them moved to summer grasses, mm. which were like kakuyas or some of the, the buffaloes, um, which because that meant that in the summertime they could have lush green grass. And what it does mean in many of those sports, those sports fields is they kind of go brown in the winter. Yes. And if you look at how the the big, you know, the MCG and those people, the big um, stadiums do it, they'll have a mix of rye grass, they'll have winter grasses, and they'll have a mix of both mm. and heavily manage them. Yes. But you can do both if mm. you really are keen. Yep. You are listening to the 3CR Gardening Show. We're running through until 9.15, so if you'd like to jump on the phones and give us a call, that number is 94190155. We have Simon Rickard and Tim Sansom in the studio this morning, so we'd love to hear from you. Or if you'd like to have a chat to Liz on the outside line, 94198377. Another query we've had is um, what to construct veggie bed uh, garden beds with, please, rather than using new timber. I'm going to throw to you, Simon, because <laughs> you, you, I know you've got raised garden beds in <laughs> a vegetable garden. I, what did you use? I used new timber. Oh, I, did you? I, sorry. Dropped you in a bed. No. <laughs> I used uh, red gum, new red gum, gum sleepers, um, but, yeah. I don't know. I think there are quite a few options. There are. Um, One thing that immediately springs to mind, um, if you're not um, building a very big um, veggie garden bed, is e-wood, which we've spoken about on the the show. E-wood is made, it looks like wood, Mm -hmm. but it's actually made out of recycled plastic and it performs brilliantly as garden very yep. long-lasting. Um, doesn't ever have to be repainted or any. Mm-hmm. There's no um, maintenance on it. So, um, and and you're doing you're doing the planet a, a nice thing because it's totally coming from recycled plastic. So, oh, there's a solution. That's yeah. one of my um, my mm. suggestions. Oh, good one. Okay. I mean, you can also use recycled timbers too if you don't want to use virgin timber. That's but, right. But the, I guess the thing with any timbers. Um, red gum included, uh, after some time, they will it rot will away. It will rot out. Whereas it will, will not. It'll last a lifetime. Mm. Yeah, absolutely no maintenance. And um, I think they've, well, they, I presume they've completely banned using arsenic-treated wood yeah. now, haven't they? But There's, um, there's different sorts of treatments. Yes. The tannery as a But I still worry about some of the treatments if you're yeah. making a vegetable garden bed. I wouldn't want any chemicals leaching no. into my veggie. No. And old railway sleepers have got creosote in them. And yes. Yeah, so. Yeah. so there you go. You All would. right. Um, now the other thing we, we haven't spoken about, of course, uh, though you've mentioned in passing, uh, that Mifkus is coming up. Yeah, a couple of weeks away. Well, not even. Not even. <clears throat> yeah, 20, 27th yeah. is opening day. Yeah. Um, so there's just been a reminder here that... Uh, that the Hanging Basket competition will be taking place again out at Mifkus. They'll have over 400 beautiful hanging baskets there to go and have a look at. And that competition is run every year by the Royal Horticultural Society of Victoria. So, uh, But there's so much to see at Mifkus, isn't there, Tim? And it's always, yeah, well, it's the showcase for our industry. Yes. Or for the nation, really. And There's no show. For those that don't know what Mifkus means, because it's an odd-sounding <laughs> word, yes. it's the Melbourne International Flower and Garden Show, which is held at the exhibition buildings, I think it's from the 27th. 27th for five days. Yeah. Yep. So it's the outdoor areas are all around show gardens and there's stall holders. Indoors with floristry. Indoors floristry. 
Um, so if you haven't been, you really should go. Mm. And for those of you who have been, there's always new things to see. The, Absolutely. The landscapers go to quite a lot of effort to, to put on their show gardens. Um, and I know there's a couple of interesting ones happening this year. I think... Um, I think the Melbourne Australian Ecosystems are doing a sustainable garden. Yes, with, they are. Uh, with wicking beds and the, yes. the biofilter affiliate they have, which yes. might be an interesting one to look at. Yep, and that's, I think, in the Achievable Gardens yeah. section yep. this year. Yeah, yep. so they're, they're putting that in. And, yeah, and always the, the show gardens are always a showcase of high-end horticulture mm. and domestic landscape design, mm. uh, which is you know, a great inspiration for mm. all of us. And what I've noticed in the last few years, there's been a, a, a nice trend back towards plant material. Yes. You know, there's, there was a period a few years ago where it was mostly bricks and pavers. Oh, that's and right. Uh, that's and, right. And pagolas, <laughs> um, which are essential parts of a, of a, of a garden. Uh, and many of us use our garden as an outdoor room and it's a leisure space. But to see it augmented with some good planting material mm. is yes. really encouraging it to is. see. It's great. Uh, I think there's some terrific plants out yep. there and plant growers. I mean, we have... We have some of the best plant growers in the world in, mm. in, in our oh, absolutely. Of the woods. So we've got some beautiful plant material out there to, for people to celebrate. Yep. We also should quickly mention in passing Victorian Schools Gardens Program. Yes, yep. Uh, they've just changed their name. They have yep. just changed their name. I've got to get used to saying that. <laughs> but um, they're also going to have quite a presence this year, I think, with um, NGIV. So um, I know they're going to have activities for children there. They're having uh, some sort of integrated program there. I know that children can pot up a plant and take yep, it home. Right. Uh, so do have a look out for that one too. Yeah, and a wonderful program that, I mean, it's, people might know the history of the Victorian School Garden Program back, I think it's 40 years young now. Kevin oh, yes. Hines kicked it, it off. Is. And it started and off Paul as. Crow. Yeah, Paul Crow. And it started off as. An award scheme, so you enter your gardens and, and there still is an, an award, um, but it's also a funding mechanism, so you can, it's a grant scheme, so it's both grants and awards, and it's a terrific thing for, from preschools right the way through to high schools. Yes, they've added in preschools yeah, yeah, this year, which this is year, which very I think exciting. Is, yeah, and because a lot of, a lot of garden activity happens in the pre and primary school years, that's yes. when you can really engage kids, so that's yes. a, a terrific addition to their program. Mm. I think. Mm. Mm. And I think they're also running um, a one-day workshop for, for teachers um, again this year yeah, on the first day, year. on the 27th. Yep. Um, and that will be really looking at, at how teachers can, can get started with a gardening program or mm. how they can engage their students more and, 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 and what to do with school gardens and, you know, what direction you mm. want to take it in and how to incorporate it in the curriculum. So, yeah, and it's um, often down to one or two key teaching staff at a, at a, at a school. Unfortunately, yes. I, and I've done a couple of those, those sessions with the teachers at MIFCUS. Okay. And to see the engagement that those teachers have and how keen they are and how oh, thirsty yes. they are for information is such yep. a wonderful thing. So and I really encourage any teachers who are interested in the gardening program to get along to one of those because they learn a lot, and not, not just from the presenters, but from each other. Yes. And in many cases, the, the, the gardens that they're developing in their schools are exemplar. They're far better than oh, I can tell them about. You know, they're, they're actually advocates right they're there. They're wonderful, yeah. yeah. And and the more um, the more teaching staff we can educate, the less problem you have if you've only got one or two staff. Mm. Yep. If they get transferred to a different school, then the whole garden program yeah. can fall in a heap. So I'd like to see yeah. many more um, teaching staff yeah. getting involved. Because a lot of a lot of those teachers are not necessarily 
part of a, a structured program like the, right. the Stephanie Alexander or other yep. type of programs. These are teachers who are doing it because it's their little passion. That's mm. right. And, and the benefits for the kids are enormous. Oh, mm. fantastic. Okay, let's go to our next caller, and we have Pam out in Kyneton. Good morning, Pam. Oh, good morning, everybody. I'm eating my breakfast. Oh, are you? Oh, well, what are you having? <laughs> um, now, Simon, I wanted to ask you about lawns. Is that okay? Sure. I don't know that I'm the best person to ask, but let's give it a go. In, so in my back garden here, I organised, I did all of my lawn, and I got rid of all of the weeds, and I um, did a spray as well and all the rest of it. But unfortunately, the... Um, clover seed was hiding so when all the lawn came up up came the clover as well and mm-hmm. it killed off a lot of the lawn that i put in so i've got a lot of bare patches all through the grass oh, okay. yep. <clears throat> do you know um so living where you do mm-hmm. similar to me mm-hmm. what would be a good um lawn seed or a good variety of lawn around here ah, yep. to use do you know there is actually one called kyneton mix there is a lawn seed mix called kyneton mix good heavens um so if you go and ask around at some of the nurseries up there um hopefully someone will have the kyneton mix there's also a ballarat mix that would do well but um, I find, Pam, the best season to sow lawn up our way is in October, actually. Oh, yeah. So wait until those, the days are getting longer and the, and the warm part of the spring comes, um, and then it just jumps out of the ground. If you sow it now and water it enough, you might get a little bit of growth, but then winter will come straight away. So, And look, the, you said that the, the clover came up and, and died back, so it's one of those annual subterranean clovers. Um, that probably means that it's set seed and put seed into your soil again. So that's another reason to hold off sowing until next spring because what you'll find is that over winter, all of that clover seed that's in there will germinate and you can weed it out. And you can just probably hoe them off when they're little, you know, go out with a hand hoe and hoe them off when they're little. It's too much. Yeah, yeah. Can I use a broad-leafed weed aside? Would you recommend... Uh, I've never used one myself, so um, you'd probably have to ask someone else for advice on that. I'll think about it. But October, you think October. Sowing in October and let the let right, the, the clover on. seed that's there germinate and get rid of that before you sow your lawn. Yes. Good yes. luck. All right. Thank you so much. Thanks, Pam. Enjoy your breakfast. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> okay, next uh, we're going to go to Lee in Merrick's North. Good morning, Lee. Lee, are you there? Yes, I am. Um, ah, good. I, I um, was wondering how deep I should put a proposed root barrier between a, a large desert ash and my vegetable garden. Oh, the, the, the large desert ash is already large? It's huge. It's a lovely tree and I don't want to do without it, but it is, I've got a mesh of um, fine, very fine weeds right through my vegetable mm. garden. Oh, okay. So, so you're not trying I to keep can't the... I get the vegetable garden moist, and I think mm. the desert ash is doing very well as a consequence. I think mm. the desert ash's roots are already there, mm. yep. and yes. it's going to be pretty much impossible mm. to get rid of them from that spot. Is there any other, other spot you can put your vegetable garden? No, but I was proposing to have a man come in with a digger and put down a root barrier. Mm. Your tree might tree. fall over. Yes. Oh. You're going to cut all the roots on one side of the tree, and that's problematic. Have you thought about going up with your vegetable beds? So no, that the I still want to put in this root barrier. So you don't have any idea of how... Um, 
I no, I don't look. You know, um, desert ashes have, have got really rapacious root systems. Um, we had a big one at Heron's Wood that was magnificent because its roots found their way to the old well. <laughs> it was, you know, I mean, they're, they're really good at finding water. That's how they they're yeah. adapted to find water. So, but that's I, what tree roots do. I yes. don't know how to advise you, Lee. Sorry. Oh. Okay. But right. I, I, I do think consider what I think Simon was about to say. It then, makes a lot of sense because you can have it in the same place. Go yeah. up. You just with go your vegetable up. Beds. Exactly. And, and your vegetable roots then won't be down where the tree roots are, so they won't be affected. What I find is that there's a lot of very fine roots right through the vegetable beds, not so mm, much heavy roots. I can roots. cut those. They'll still be the, They'll the still tree be, roots. Yes. So you think of it, the roots of a tree end up. Even though the, the fat ones near the tree look like they're trunks, yes. it's the fine feeder roots at the very end that are doing all the work. That's uh, right. So it's, it's still the tree. And, yeah, unfortunately, you can't get rid of those without getting rid of the tree. No. So you don't think going down a metre or so right across no. the no. no, no. Very dangerous to do. Yeah. And, and even if you did, so two things there. One, you would destabilise the anchoring of the tree. Uh, and the second thing is it would be for really no great benefit because... The, the roots that are remaining closer to the tree will branch and grow new roots, which will just come over and through and under. Oh. They, the barrier won't actually be effective. Oh, how that's a very annoying start. To Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> I oh, this we, was just the plan. Just we're put so depressing. Put a root barrier in. <laughs> <laughs> Lee, I've got a big gum tree near my veggie garden, and its roots find it, it, their way into my veggie garden all the time. And just, you know, between crops, I just chop out the big roots and throw them away and keep going. Well, that's what I've been doing so far. But I, it's, I, I think it's boring, if I just built it? the beds up. I would still end up with all of these little roots coming up into the new soil. No, I don't think you would, to be quite honest. I doubt that they would climb. You know, if if, if you have a decent raised bed, so and and that's going to save your back as well. My beds are already about 10 centimetres. No, we're talking about about two or three feet. Yes. Waist high. Hmm. Waist high. Something to think about anyway. Okay. Thank you very much. Sorry, Lee. Thank you. Thank (laughs) you for being there to ask the question. Okay. (laughs) Bye. Bye. Yes, it's... That's not always an easy solution. No, trees it? and veggies are not easy bedfellows at no, all. They're no, they're not. Oh, they're not. How far are your gum trees from your veggie? Oh, you know, 15 metres or yeah. something. And they just they just make a beeline for the veggie beds. It, well, and I know they're gum sense. roots because they smell like eucalyptus when yeah. I chop them out. It, well, it makes complete sense that, of course, it that does. That's what tree roots do. I mean, mm. I think people, I, I don't know, it, you have to understand that what a tree root is doing is seeking moisture in the ground. Mm. Yeah. So and nutrients and other things, but water's the carrier. So when you put a vegetable garden bed in, you create wonderful soil for these soft little annuals. Oh, yeah. Wonderful soil with heaps of moisture and heaps of nutrient. Of course the roots are going to fly in. Yeah. I a bit of that. Yeah, Yeah, it's a smorgasbord. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, we'll go next to, uh, let me see, Ken in Sunshine. Good morning, Ken. Good morning, and thanks for your wonderful, wonderful show. It's absolutely fantastic. Look, I just wanted to talk. I've got a kaikoura and, um, um, oh, oh God. Um, I've got a kaikoura lawn and, um, I can't think of the other bloody name and I know it's in the head. Buffalo? Buffalo, that's right. Okay. And, um, it is absolutely fantastic. I'm, I, I mow it on the highest thing on the mower and you've got to mow it once a week in the summer. And probably a week and a half, and it's an excellent lawn. And mm. I keep it trimmed, and it doesn't go anywhere. Mm. 
And you've got to do a little bit of maintenance in your garden and keep that, and it's lovely outside all the time. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Well, uh, yeah, you're enjoying the garden. So from that's time to time, right. you've got to trim some edges. That's exact, part of the fun. Exactly right. Yeah. Okay. I've, I've got a gum tree at the front of my house. I planted it when we first moved in the house 45 years ago, and it's four storeys high, and it's absolutely beautiful. Yeah, great. It's, a, it's, a, it's absolutely. Anyway, thanks very much for your program. Thanks, Ken. Okay, good thanks. on you, thanks, Ken. Bye. Bye. Yeah, that habit Kaikuyu has, uh, like Tim said, of sending out these long runners into your beds. Its scientific name, Kaikuyu, is Penicetum clandestinum. And clandes- mm. It's oh. the clandestine grass yeah, that sends out <laughs> secret runners and pops up 10 feet away. <laughs> yeah, well named. <laughs> okay, um, we have uh, a caller has propagated an edible ginger in a small pot. How does she need to care for it over winter? Repot now or when? Keep it warm. It's it's a proper tropical plant, yes. ginger. And, um, you know, I, I, I used to live in Canberra and used to plant ginger in, in pots and it would always die and turn to slime in winter. Really smelly slime too, oh. by the way, um, just because it doesn't like the cold. So it needs to be kept sufficiently warm. And um, it, it can go dormant over winter, and you need to dry it off a bit. Um, don't don't let it stay too moist. So maybe you want to stand the pot on top of the, your hot water cylinder, or um, you know something like that. Put it inside your shed, but somewhere where it will remain warm and relatively dry over winter. There you go. Okay, excellent. Now, two things I should quickly mention. Uh, this is one for the diaries. Um, coming up on Saturday, the thirtieth of March. Um, there's going to be an open day out at Kevin Hines Grove. This is in 39 Weatherby Road in Doncaster. Uh, they're having their, uh, as well as open day, it'll be an autumn fair and plant sale, 9am through to 3pm. There'll be a barbecue, coffee cart, fruit trees and veggie seedlings for sale, secondhand books, homemade preserves, Herbs, perennials and succulents and a free kids' corner. So um, I will remind listeners of, to the, at, over the next couple of weeks, but um, they do some wonderful work out at Kevin Hines Grow, so um, a great, uh, a great uh, program to support. They are a registered uh, national disability insurance service provider, so I know they do some wonderful work there particularly with working with people with disabilities in the gardens there. So um, that's one for your diary, 30th of March. The other one um, I should quickly mention is that uh, <coughs> Gardening Australia has been, uh, it's in the running for some Logie Awards this year. Uh, so um, it's been shortlisted for um, a, one of the things is most popular lifestyle program. So um, if listeners would like to vote for that, you can go to the Gardening Australia website. Um, the initial round of voting closes on March 31st, uh, so you'll be able to vote again then on 24th of June if they make the nominee list. So, um, But uh, if you go to that website and click on to vote, you do have to, it's compulsory to vote for the first four categories before you can then um, scroll through to um, the actual categories that uh, Gardening Australia have been nominated for. So as I said, one is most popular lifestyle program. Um, Another one is most popular presenter. Um, So uh, if you're interested in doing that, just go to the Gardening Australia website. Let's get our Amelia Logie. (laughs) 
gold logie. Imagine if, yeah, Millie comes in with a gold logie. How good would that be? Gosh, we'd all have to dress up for it. Tim, you've got another plant that we haven't mentioned yet. I do. Uh, Again, another one of the plants that's featuring at the Flower and Garden Show, the other side garden. Yep. So the focus of this garden was really about um, sort of textural plants, plants with um, foliage interest. Uh, and robust. What does actually the other side refer to? Uh, the other side, it's because it's sponsored through Lawn Solutions. It's the concept is that the grass is always greener on the other side. Ah, That's where the other side comes okay. from. And the concept being that many people today, in today's fast modern world, like to look at their garden and, and live in it rather than actually work on it a lot. So it's <laughs> a kind of a simple garden. It's kind of it's not really my kind of garden, but it's the kind of garden that that I think. Designers have to have to uh, have to provide for people. Yep, um, and so it's going to be a lot of green as so well. So a lot of a lot of green, a lot, and I think there's a, a decking area and a pool area. Yep. So it's a sort of a, a lot of these gardens are very sort of stylized to be yes. a recreational space. But the plant material brief was really to have textural interest, foliage interest. Okay. So hence the selection of Carex Feather Falls as one of the feature plants because first it's robust and it will and it will work in many, many conditions. Yep. So a lot of applicable for many gardens, but also had a foliage interest with the variegation. Mm-hmm. This one here that I brought in is called... It's also variegated. It is also variegated. This is Euphorbia Ascot Rainbow. Now, the breeding story on this one is much more local than the one we were just talking okay. about. So this is bred by our good friend David Glenn at Oh, really? Uh, Lamley. Lamley. So Ascot Rainbow. Ascot is the town where Lamley is situated. Yep. This is a, uh, a sport of Euphorbia martinii, or perhaps a cross. I don't know exactly what the, the derivation or the, the breeding origin is. Um... Ascot rainbow, the rainbow being a reference to the colour of the, the variegation. So if any of you know what Euphorbia martinii is, it's sort of a low-growing Euphorbia. Euphorbias are one of the spurges. There are oh, there's hundreds, thousands of spurges oh, yeah. species, you know, often coastal, um, but quite tough. Take hot conditions very well, given that this comes from, you know, Ascot, near where, Ascot, it's, where yeah. it's a hot <laughs> plain. Um, it's, it's proven its worth in... In hot, dry conditions, will take sun. We'll also grow a little bit in shade. In fact, this one's been in a bit of shade, and the variegation is a bit more uh, sort of yellow, yellowy green, limey green in shade. In full sun, the the sort of purples come out more. Okay. Um, and in the hence in, the rainbow. Yeah. So then, and through and through the season, through the winter, the colour deepens too, and you get more much more of the rust colour. Yep. To it. So it's um, another excellent one. That's it, it, pot specimens planted on mass. Um, gives real depth of interest uh, mm. through through its foliage. Sprays of flower, sort of, I guess, around November, December, okay. uh, which are little bracts that hang on quite a long time with a little interesting red uh, fleck in the middle. Um, and it's, like, super universal, super useful utility plant um, that is pretty hard to kill but looks good year-round. Yep. Um, it's interestingly... So the, the other plant I was talking about, Carex Feather Falls, is a... Dutch introduction into Australia, whereas Ascot Rainbow is an Australian introduction that's now going internationally. Oh, well done. And I think there's in excess of 100,000, 200,000 units being sold every year in Gosh, the US. it's doing well. I've seen it all around the world in my travels. Yeah. Yep, it's, okay. And it, in fact, it's, one, it's, one of the, it's, an, it's a great Australian breeding story, really. Because yes, it's, it is. So it's, it's making great gains in the US, you know, being used in landscapes and home gardens. It made it to the front page of the RHS Plantsman yes. magazine. Yep. Wow. Or maybe it was the garden, one of the two. Mm-hmm. So that's the Royal Horticultural Society in the UK. Yep. Uh, it's been awarded a garden 
Award of Garden Merit by the uh, UK RHS. Wonderful. So, terrific plant yeah. that has the humblest origins in yeah. central Victoria. Yeah. What a great story. Yeah. Yeah. Brilliant. Well done, David. Well yeah. done, David. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Fantastic. Okay. We're going to our next caller. We have Virginia out in Coburg. Good morning, Virginia. Oh, hi. Um, I've got a question about uh, espaliering, pruning and um, plum trees. I've got two espaliered plums, um, a Dajen and a green gauge. Something is, uh, and it's, both of them have got a lot of new growth, which I normally would prune off now, but I notice something is eating the old growth of the green gauge right back to the leaf stubs. And I'm wondering if I should prune that new growth off or just leave it. Last, it happened last year and mm. the whole tree, tree was actually... Sounds like you might have denuded. a possum, Virginia. Yes, I think so, but... Um, so I'm not quite sure what to do. Mm. There's a couple of things in what you've just said there. Firstly, you've, you've got an issue with a possum that's grazing the top of your plums. Yeah. Uh, that's, let's set that aside as an issue for a sec. You also mentioned you were talking about pruning them and shaping them, um, and I think we probably need to flesh that out a bit. So what are you trying to achieve with the, well, the training? Well, they've already got their framework. Okay. Um, but there's a lot of kind of new, just new growth coming up um, from, the, from the framework that's already established. So um, I usually prune that new growth off um, like earlier in the season, but this is the second kind of flush of growth. Okay. Yep. So should I not prune that? Uh, look, I'd still be... In, in, in a similar fashion to we were talking about with our apples, I'd, with my stone fruit, I will still be doing some summer pruning. Yeah. Um, remembering that they do fruit slightly differently to the apples and pears. They don't yeah. f- fruit off permanent spurs. That You want to be renewing the fruiting wood, which is typically second-year-old wood each year. Yeah. So what you want to be doing with uh, your espaliered stone fruit is you want to be encouraging second-year wood to be uh, there every year. Yep. Which means you've, that the new growth that comes, you want to sort of take the tops out, allow it to ripen up for the following year, and at the same time be taking out some of the big old wood uh, that's already spent. Yeah. Um, and which is a little hard to describe on the radio. I don't know how do you go mm. about yours at, at home, Simon. Oh, exactly what you just said. Yeah. I mean, anything that gets massively out of bounds, Virginia, if you've, like mine, have put on quite big, thick growth on the top of the things, and I'll, yeah, I'll remove I've all got of that. that. I've got that. Yep. Um, so I would rem- I've been removing that now to try to push vigor back down into the bottom of the tree. Yeah. And so that the wounds of those will heal before winter, because plum trees don't heal, you know, as well if you prune yeah. them in winter especially. Yeah. Um, and, and then just remain, keep as much of the sort of twiggy, weak growth as you can because that twiggy, weak growth tends to be fruitful. Yeah, and as so Tim said, if I normally prune it back to about five leaves, the new yep. growth. Mm-hmm. Yep, that sounds right. Yep. Yeah, so, but I'm just wondering... Um, I don't take much of the old growth out because that's still the structure of the espalier, Yep. if you know what I yep. mean. Yep. You might have to at some point get ruthless yeah. with one of those and take it back. 
because yeah. if you keep doing if you keep leaving those big ones you'll end up with only growth at the end and you get little, little less growth at the base of the tree yeah um, so from time to time and it's not every year maybe every two or three years you can take out a big one oh, okay. uh, and it will reshoot from Replace that, it from that point. Um, mm. but right. yeah be aware that pruning is best done in the growing phase growing yeah. months because they'll heal better and yeah, and al- always use you really always clean your secateurs with a bit of methylated spirits or a solution of bleach yep. because gumnosis is your worst enemy and you don't mm. want to get it. Yeah. yeah. Um, the other question is that um, I've got this uh, fig that I'm also trying to kind of bend over. Mm. Um, it's a purple heart. It's a digger's one. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's put out huge branches can i prune them off now like coming right out like again figs figs don't respond well to big pruning cuts um but if you're going to do that i would do it in winter on a fig when um the sap's not going to bleed everywhere okay Um, yeah and that is a huge fig too. The original tree, which Tim and I both know, is massive. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the, so the best... label said it was a smallish fig. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, um, the it's, it's got best... enormous leaves. Yeah, mm. huge, big, round Some leaves. Felty, that's yeah. right. Sort of yeah. beautiful thing. It's a really beautiful tree and really, a beautiful, beautiful fruit too. Yeah. Actually, does it take a while to fruit? I've just I've had it for about. Three years and I haven't really had any fruit. I don't think so. Uh, No, you should be getting fruit in the next year or so. Mm. Yeah. Okay. But with figs, it's best to um, prune them, um, you know, small. When you see before a branch becomes really big, if you see it going in the wrong direction, yeah, I don't have to need. I don't have to use a pruning saw or anything. I can still use like secateurs, loppers, or loppers. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Great. Is that? Is it? Should I wait till winter to get rid of those branches? I think I, I would. Yeah, would I would. They're, they're not going to do much more now anyway. Mm-hmm. A little bit of growth at the end of the season, but, you know, typically, what, have you got another six weeks before it'll drop And just leaves? be aware also, you, you know, um, like Tim said with the plum trees, figs bear their fruit in a different way to plums and apples again. So it's important to kind of read up about yeah. the, the kind of wood that they bear their fruit on. Because it's very easy with figs to to remove all of the wood that's going to bear figs in the following years. Yeah, right. And and also bear in mind you'll never get them looking as neat and tidy as an espaliate apple or a, mm. or a fan shaped plum. There, figs always look a bit rangy and lollopy. They're more like a hedge than a yeah. yeah, when yeah. You, when you mind you, in, su- in saying that, I have seen um, figs very very successfully espaliate along mm. a wall, mm-hmm. but they must have started when they were really young. You yeah, know, they must have planned yeah. for the whole thing right yeah. from the word go. And they need a lot of maintenance because yes. what they'll t- tend to do in that, they'll have a beautiful structure. You know, all horizontal from when they were grown, and then the tips at the end will just go wild. Yeah. Yes. So, yeah. And that's where all the fruiting action tends to happen yeah. out on that, that active growth. Yeah. So, so they you look prune wonderful. all of that back in the winter of, of where it's fruited. Is that right? So the, the figs bear, um, the, the current year's growth, so the, the, the green tips that you've got on all, all of your fig now, if you have a look at the very ends of those growths, you might see t- tiny little round, these tiny little baby proto-figs, and they're only yeah. the size of, oh, what are they? The they're size lower of down the... on the branches, I've noticed. No, they're, well, they're mostly at the tips usually, and they'll oh. be next year's figs. Yeah. So keep a few of those tips if you see any of the tiny baby figs. So, so the idea with a fig, if you want to 
sort of contain it as a, a bush or a la- or sort of a large bush, is that as it grows, as from its young development, you're sort of tipping it out and encouraging branching, yeah. so that when you're standing there and it's sort of six feet tall in front of you, there is a mass of branches across it that mm. are all quite sort of dendritic and close. Yeah. If you let one or two big long ones go then you've got to bring them back to re-establish that, which is, which is the sort of heavier pruning that you would do wintertime mm. so that you'll get that response growth in spring, yep. nip that out over the summertime, and you start getting the branching. Lots of yep. twigginess. Yeah, you want twigginess. But I will say, Virginia, you're thinking about all the right issues with your, with your trees. You've asked the right questions, and you're thinking about, about the right issues, so that's a really great start. I've just got the possum problem, it appears. Yeah. yeah. We didn't get back to that one, did we? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Good luck, Virginia. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Right, moving on. Next up we have Diane out in Epping. Good morning, Diane. Oh, hi. Um, I've, I've got a really bad problem with school wasp. I've had a little orange tree for three years, which I planted... And unfortunately, it looks like I'm going to have to chop most of it off if I have to chop off the gall wasp. Um, I don't know what to do. There's no other solution, no, really. No, that's, that's what you've got to and do, the, I'm the, afraid. The challenge in urban and suburban environments is that even if you do all the right things and you Your chop them all mind. out, who, up the road, they might not, and you can get reinfected. Yep. So it's, once it's got to the point where you're fully inf- infested like you are, the only way is to chop out the galls. Um, okay. um, and then come next season when you're, when you're getting the new season's growth, I guess you can look out on the fresh green branches to see if there's any pinpricks or any uh, infestation, but it's really hard to spot. Okay. The one good thing is that um, citrus really respond. They the grow green. back amazingly. Mm. They'll grow back even taller yep. than what they were last oh, season. So yeah, especially well. if it's got a decent root system. Yes. And it's, and it's a healthy tree. Yes. Mm. Cutting it hard isn't going to hurt it. No, it's, it's not. It's gonna, you're not going to get fruit you know, in the same cycle, years, yeah. um, but the tree should respond But once well. you've done it once, if you then just keep your eye out yep. and, 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 and as soon as you spot any reinfestation, yep. take it off. And, vigilant. of course, Diane, don't put the, the galls that you remove in your compost. Oh, Make no. sure you bag them and bin them or burn mm. them. Yep. Get them off-site. Yes. Thank you very much. Okay, then. Good luck. Bye. Bye. And uh, next we're going to Michael out in Caulfield. Good morning, Michael. Uh, good morning. Just to, uh, just to comment on the gall issue, I had a case where it was right on the uh, one of the key branches, which if I cut it off, there would be not much tree left. <laughs> so I was right up on it, and apparently you can slice, which I did, both sides of the gall, and I sprayed with the systemic insecticide, Yep. and uh, it's heated over it, and it seems to be fine. And then when I do trim them off, I microwave. I cut off the bits and pieces, and I microwave them for five minutes. Oh, good idea. Really? Is that fun? I get some satisfaction. Yes. <laughs> I would too. Take that. Anyway, the point of my question is we have some rhubarb, and I noticed something really strange the other day, that, that there was this sort of black clumping around them. And I thought, oh, maybe I'd put the fertilizer too close. But we had a look this morning, and actually it's it's about the rhubarb is now sort of – I don't know what to call it. it. It's an old part of the rhubarb. It's part of the plant, and it's about three inches now. So the new growth is coming up about three inches uh, out of the soil. Yep. 
And should I be covering that over, or is it too old, or what should I should I dig it up and replant it, or what should I do? No, I mean, they do make a late flush of growth. You know, they hate heat, rhubarbs, so mm. they will often make a spring and an autumn flush of growth. But if you're worried that the plant is, is getting too big and uh, congested, then they do benefit from being divided. No, in, we divided them. It's, it, it's, mm. it's just, uh, it's just the, the plant itself is... is uh, they're, they're not only... What do you call it? There's not any... Um, um, Pups, if I can use that term, coming mm-hmm. off them. It's, it's just the main plant, and it seems to be... Um, so it's, it's one central... Yeah, the one central, the one central thing is now about three inches or so across, out of the ground. Oh, oh, I wonder if it's fasciation or something. I don't know. That, I, I can't quite picture it, but it sounds... Because normally, like I think what Simon was suggesting, that they start to sort of aggregate, and then you can split yes, them yes, up and, and divide I, and them and go. I've divided them up before. Yeah, that's yep. not a big issue. No idea. But this is this is I've not seen before, and I thought, oh, I wonder what it, what it means. Hmm. Let's well, let's watch it and see what it does. What unfurls? Ring back and tell yeah, us. Ring yeah. back in a couple of weeks when it, something else has happened. All right. The the other question is on the apples. Um, I I unfortunately bought a triploid. It's either a Rhode Island greening or a Dr. Hogg. I can't remember which one is mm-hmm. which. Um, and of course, that means you have to have more than <laughs> three things, as you said. Yes. So I've got a yeah. snow apple as well. But my problem oh, is that Canadian. they never flower. Mm-hmm. Uh, very little way of flowers. And I don't know what I'm doing wrong. Ah, it could be a few different things, uh, Michael. It, it, how old are the trees? Well, they're 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 very well established. established. They'd be 15 years old anyway. Mm. Sometimes trees will just refuse to... I mean, it could be that, that you, there's not enough potassium in your soil. Could that be a problem? Uh, it could be. Uh, might I you can need to add, that. Yeah, add some potassium? Fine, yeah. uh, it could have to do with your pruning, but, I mean, it sounds like you're a very skilled gardener. I mean... <laughs> not a skilled gardener, but I have learned about the summer pruning and uh, I'm keeping it down now to... They, they had gotten quite large, and okay. I've cut them back so that they're uh, within reach uh, height. And the, the the only other issue is that sometimes individual trees will just refuse to flower, and so there's all kinds of advanced techniques you can use, like cincturing, mm. where you put you know a bit of wire around the trunk and strangle the tree, Ooh, and that yeah. usually or notches under buds. And, yeah, exactly, yeah. nicking and notching. There's all kinds of advanced techniques. So I guess the first thing to do is identify, you know, we'll do a potassium. But the other issue I'm wondering about is I think maybe the possums are eating off the fruiting. Ah, yes. Could well, be. That, that could be a thing too. Have that you had that problem? Or, or, or buds, rather, in spring. Yeah, are they the, are the spurs there, the sort of thick, knobbly growth? Well, there were, but I, that's what I said. I, I noticed that uh, they've been some gnawing, and I thought, oh, hey, wait a second, that, that's, that's gone. Yeah. So I don't know, other than caging the whole lot, I don't yes. know of any solution. That might be the solution. Yeah, yeah. a physical barrier is really the only, the only thing way. Possums. Yeah. Yeah. Not when you can use chili and these sorts of things, but they're, they're not foolproof. Mixed success, yeah. no. Not foolproof. Yeah. Okay, well, thank you very much. Sorry, okay. Michael. That's okay. Bye. Bye. Well, we've only got, goodness me, uh, not very long to go at all. Simon, you yes. have got a chance to quickly mention what else sure. you brought in. I, well, the other things I brought in were flowers because, as I said, March is a ghastly time of the year in my garden. So I brought some uh, autumn flowering bulbs, which are the best thing in my garden at the moment. And the first one is this um, Belladon lily, you know, a very well-known South African um, bulb, uh, huge big bulbs that just sit there dormant in the hottest, dry soil all summer. Yep. And then sometime between, you know, the end of January and March, they put out these flowers and you, you suddenly remember they're there and think, well, actually, I'm a quite a good gardener after all. <laughs> <laughs> Look what and, I've done. <laughs> and this one here is actually a hybrid of a, of a, 
um, amaryllis and a brunswigia, which is another kind of South African um, bulb. Um, and these crosses probably first appeared in Australia in the 19th century, actually. So their collective name is um, Amarigia bidwillii. That's after a deeper John pink than a lot of the ones That's around. right. It's a deep, much, much darker pink yes. because it gets that from the Brunswickia parent. Yes. And also, if you look, the flowers are arranged all the way around the stem, mm. whereas with a true beautiful. belladonna lily, they're just all they're on just, one side. That's right. Yep. Yep. So there's that, and it's a beautiful hot, dark pink. I'm a big fan of hot pink. And then I also brought a whole lot of small bulbs, and um, I've got lots of culture chickens in here and they call these the common name is autumn crocus or meadow saffron but and they do look like crocus flowers little goblet shaped flowers yes, they do. but they're not related to crocus at okay. all um, they're in a totally different family and actually uh, meadow saffron the other common name saffron of course is edible comes from a crocus but these are very very poisonous Whoa. and they make a, um, a cancer drug from them actually so okay. when you, if you get chemotherapy um, yep. one of the drugs is made from these colchicums so they're very very toxic but um, really beautiful and such great value because, you know, when you plant one tulip bulb, you get one tulip flower. One yes. daffodil bulb, one daffodil flower. Plant a colchicum, you'll get 20 flowers per bulb. Fantastic. Good value for money. Oh, gosh, yes. And they flower with no leaves. It's lovely. Yeah. You've just got to make sure you don't put a fork through them when you don't know they're there. Exactly. <laughs> or you've forgotten where you planted them. Or <laughs> but listeners can see photographs of those up on the up on the Instagram page now. They're already up. Yep. So, yep. Brilliant. Um, very quickly, have you got any workshops coming up, Simon? No, my next thing is uh, I'm leading a tour to Japan um, next okay. week. Yeah. Yes, next week. Yeah, next week. Oh, going to do like to get on board. Yeah. With <laughs> Come with me in autumn. We're running our very first autumn oh, tour with Botanica. Oh, you're finally doing an autumn finally tour Finally doing it in Japan. November. So yes, if you'd like wonderful. to come and see the autumn colour in Japan, come with me in November. Botanica World Discoveries. It is stunning. It's just stunning. I can't recommend oh, it highly enough. Yes, Great. absolutely. Whole hillsides just covered oh, with eight wait. maples in the most outrageous colours. Really outrageous. So well done, you. Thanks, Pam. <laughs> yeah, no, good fun. Um, and that's with Botanica. Yes, that's right. Yes. Botanica World Discoveries. Excellent. Okay. Um, thank you to both of you. It's been great having you in on the show this morning. Um, of course, I'm going to twist your arms and get you back on the show at some stage. So uh, a big thank you. And also a huge thank you to Susie and Liz, who've been managing all the calls. But uh, yet again, we've run out of time. We will be back again next week at 7.30. So until then, bye for now. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.